You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And this was a master class in what is going on in the alternative space. Uh, Alana Weinstein is uniquely situated to understand hedge funds, venture capital, uh, private equity, the demands of scaling a billion-dollar firm into a $40-billion-dollar firm, who is moving around from firm to firm, who are the most talented people in the space, what is going on with outflows from hedge funds, and why. I don't know how else to describe this except to say this is absolutely an incredible discussion from a person uniquely situated in a one-off vantage point to understand exactly what's taking place in this space. So with no further ado, my conversation with Alana Weinstein. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Alana Weinstein. She is the founder and CEO of the IDW Group, a leading boutique for hedge funds, private equity, and family offices in search of top investment talent. Previously, she worked at such August firms as Goldman Sachs and the Boston Consulting Group. She got her undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and her MBA from Harvard. Ilana Weinstein, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. And I add that because I've seen you on Bloomberg TV many times, but I don't recall ever hearing you on Bloomberg Radio. This is my first time, Barry. So you've been in the asset management industry for more than two decades. How did you end up on the recruiting side? The short answer is I was really young and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had gone to HBS after a year at Goldman. So mm-hmm. I literally went from Penn, from my dorm room to my parents' home, worked at Goldman for a year. Uh, and then uh, and then went to HBS. And uh, just to go back and answer your question, I ended up going to the Boston Consulting Group really because I felt I needed to get a post-MBA to my MBA. Mm-hmm. I wanted to figure out um, what path I wanted to take, what sorts of problems I wanted to solve, what industries were interesting to me. And um, and this is in the, I was in my late 20s. This is in the mid 90s so the dot com because that's of course what we called it back then right. the dot com bubble was just bubbling and within a year and a half my entire 
class of MBAs at BCG, the class I entered with was gonzo. I was literally, they'd all gone to they California all, to seek their, you know, start the next whatever. Give me a big you, fat slug of stock options and a stock that just and, goes up uh, 10% a day and, and everybody jumped at it. And done. Right. And you can imagine how that ended for most of them. Uh, it, it depends on if they knew when to hit the bid or not. If they were smart and, and took off some risk, not too bad. The but, people who didn't, so they had gone to try to start dot com companies, mm-hmm. and um, I that wasn't my gig. I wasn't. I realized I didn't really. I'd learned a lot at BCG. I didn't want to be a management consultant um, as a as a career path, and I still was figuring out what do I want to do. And before I committed to um, any particular pathway, I figured. I would jump into another milieu where I could learn, again, more about companies and functions and just figure out where I wanted to commit to. And so I joined a large recruiting firm thinking that would give me a purview. And as it turned out, I was really good at it. And I (laughs) fell into, uh, I quickly joined their financial services practice. And uh, that's how I I ended up in recruiting. And so you end up focusing... A little further along in your career on hedge funds, private equity, family offices. So what happened was um, after about a year or two there, the dot-com bubble burst. Mm -hmm. And there, this is this big search firm I was at, their financial services practice was really focused more on investment banking, equities, traditional asset management, sort of what I'll call older school businesses Mm -hmm. compared to what I really fell into and started to focus on, which was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, as you'll remember, these were the, this is what was fueling the sell side. This is where the action was. It was the prop groups. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was these new first of their kind type financial products. It was called, so it was credit correlation, mm-hmm. asset swaps, wasn't even called credit derivatives back then, right. highly structured first of their kind derivatives types of transactions. That's what we were focused on for the sell side clients that I was working with. And that's where the juice was. And all of a sudden, I developed my own business, which was on fire within this big firm. And it just became obvious after a few years to me um, to really try to do this on my own, given um, I was acting effectively independently within a larger construct, which Mm -hmm. was having issues at the time. So let's talk also about the timing. As you were explaining that, I began to think about the timing. If we go back 20, 25 years, what were there? 200, 400 hedge funds? Today, there's 11,000. Your timing into that ramp up could not have been any better. It was perfect, Barry, right? right? I planned it perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, so so all these, and and Goldman Sachs is, is infamous for saying to a group of traders who they smell might be itching to head out, hey, why don't you guys go set up a hedge fund? We'll get you capital. Uh, we'll we'll prime broker for you, and we'll steer some potential clients to you. And that's how they built an immense uh, prime brokerage business. 
how much was the Goldman Sachs connection helpful, or as you as an analyst, it, it had nothing. I, really, I was literally different... just understand. I started at Goldman mm-hmm. in the middle of my senior year at Penn. Right. I mean, I because I just was. I don't know. I was stupid. I was like working. I just I got through all my classes. I didn't have. I didn't have enough fun in college. Right. Is the bottom line. I'm it making, sounds it. Making up for it. Trying to make up for lost time now. But okay. um, <laughs> uh, I was finished with my classes. I started middle of my senior year, and I was out within literally a year to HBS. So mm-hmm. think about it. I was. I hadn't even graduated from college so this was it was that was not what um really cat what what really jump-started my business it what it was however um you are correct in signaling the sell side um as as a driver of um hedge fund talent because back then it was the prop groups that mm-hmm. were the precursors to hedge funds it was right. it was these you know again high octane um, and, and these were the guys who got paid the most on the sell side at the time. And right? even still felt like they weren't capturing as much of their P&L as they wanted. Well, you know, it, it, it within a sell side context, they were doing as well as they possibly could. Back right. then, you could be uh, a superstar prop trader and earning 20, 30, 40 million bucks a year, which <sighs> which doesn't happen anymore you could, be, mer- you could right. be earning more certainly than the ceo but their buddies were leaving um many of whom were goldman partners or just were um just like again high octane prop traders from credit suisse from deutsche bank from morgan stanley from jp morgan and they were setting up shop and remember back then you could start with 50 and scale to a billion quickly very quickly yeah, and yeah. so and all of a sudden there's no headwinds from any other part of the bank. There's no cap at all in terms of how you get paid. You can do whatever you want. And if you're an entrepreneurial person who is a great investment professional and that's your passion and that's what you want to do, why be part of a bank? There was no headwind to getting into this business and scaling if you could produce the goods. And back then, you could do that a lot more easily. Quite, quite fascinating. Let, let's talk a little bit, Alana, about how your business works. Do hedge funds and family offices come to you looking for slots to fill? Are the traders and, and fund managers reaching out to you? What What is the structure like? So um, let me back up and tell you, which I'm actually quite proud of. We've been in business for almost 17 years, 17 this February. Most of our clients, we've been working with practically if not since the beginning, beginning, certainly within the first few years mm-hmm. of inception of IDW. So what that means is we're, um, we really know their business. We've helped them build their business. And yes, they are coming to us um, for specific assignments, whether it's, and, and the common thread being they are all um, senior people who can move the needle, whether it's a someone to do be a TMT PM for equities, um, someone to run an emerging markets business, someone to build and run distress. But at the same time, and this goes back perhaps to my BCG background, um, I really, our, our role, my firm's role is to also be an advisor to them as well as to the market. So it it's, I'll give you two assignments we're working on today and the genesis of it. Um, each, each one um, is arguably for one of the biggest and most sophisticated hedge funds in the world. One, uh, I started talking with the founder at the end of the summer about a new business he wants to build. He runs a $40 billion hedge fund, super successful, and he wants to create something wholly other than what he does today. So we're helping him find somebody who could 
oversee that and build that. That's that's a very sophisticated person for who's, sure. who's not, this isn't someone looking for a job. This is somebody who um, has actually had great success with what they've done in the past. And this is kind of an interesting maybe chapter two. Um, and, and as successful as they've been, it's an opportunity for even greater wealth creation. Mm-hmm. The second example I'll give you is another um, client that is almost as big. Um, and again, these are two of the most successful hedge funds in the world. Very forward-thinking guys. Um, this is a client we've worked with for a long time. I came to him and I said to him, um, "There, I see an ARB in the market right now. Um, there's a universe of people who are really talented and are staying where they are, not because they're happy, but be- but because a better option doesn't exist. And if you created this, I think you could capture that alpha, right? This this group of individuals that have been phenomenal PL generators, even in the last few years, where it's been very difficult. Sure. He's now building that business. Huh. So it's both um, working on um, discrete assignments for our clients, as well as coming to them with advice about where to take take their um, how to take their funds forward. That that's fascinating. So if someone comes to you and they're looking to fill a specific role, what is your thought process like when you're trying to say, who do I know that might be a good fit for this? Or if I don't know anybody in particular who comes to mind, how do you go about? creating um, a pool of applicants that could fill that role? Well, after, again, almost two decades doing this, we typically... um, You know most of the players We kind of know. I'm not going to go so far as to say we have the answer before we begin, although that is often correct, like actually formally begin the search. Like someone says something and you're like, I know, in the back of your head, I have just the person. Well, we've done so much work in every conceivable asset class so many times um, that when we start something, it's rarely truly brand new. Mm -hmm. What it can be, because certain strategies are more cyclical than others. So for example, um, when we did the, here's a good example, when we did the head of emerging markets for one of our clients, he asked me how much work we'd done in EM. And I told him we had done a fair bit of work this is going back a few years, but because it's a cyclical strategy, not for a while. Um, So there... What we did is we threw a lasso over the universe sort of as we knew it from when we last left off and when that strategy was last in vogue. And and it was a pretty sizable universe. But um, And this was a global search as well, right? Because it's ahead of emerging markets. It's The person could sit here or could sit in London. And we just dive in and we build a tapestry of who the best people are, which is both by meeting people that we already know to be good. But even if we have no idea... Um, the reality is we're doing so much work in other areas, whether it's um, credit, rates, macro. And if we're doing work at a multi-strat and we have the credit candidates or the uh, equities candidates in play, they will also have perspective on who is good in EM, right? Whether it's at their firm or mm-hmm. they may or they may know someone that they respect at another firm. And, and the common theme is these are people, we're reaching out to people who have, who we, who we view as best in class and um, talented people tend to recommend other talented people. So we, we very quickly um, form a picture of who the best people are. And the other thing, Barry, is just good old fashioned hard work. When mm-hmm. we do a search, any search, we're typically going through maybe two, 300 people, even though I know the answer is within 
10 to 15 of those. We just want to make sure we're leaving no stone unturned and also building our own depth and breadth of knowledge. So when you make a final recommendation to a firm, I imagine this varies from firm to firms. Do some firms say, find me the guy and I'll hire them? Or do firms say, give me your best on our three choices and we'll interview them what what's the range like it's really it's usually iterative because again there there is there's a best three choices in its basest form which is people who are um who can generate who are the people who can generate consistent pnl over time mm-hmm. um that meet with with our um with that meet with our investing you know our investment parameters but your your version of who the those best three people are may be different than someone else's. Part of it is cultural fit. That was my next question. Um, part literally. of it is just how flexible you as a founder are going to be with respect to giving them. You may say you're going to give them a fair degree of you know a, a lot of autonomy, but they may need more than what you're willing to give them. Um, they and then there are just nuances. They may you you may say you're open to somebody who runs in a in a manner that's quite that's concentrated and volatile, but their version of concentration and volatility may be too much for you. So there's a lot of nuances where we you and I um, need to iterate on truly who the best quote three are. And the way we work is I'm not gonna we're not gonna throw fifty. We're gonna do the work of meeting all the people, but we're gonna have you meet. Let's call it fifteen to twenty. That and, many. Yeah, and they want to as well because we're really? talking about really good people, and they're going to learn something. Right. They're going to learn how other funds are set up. They're going to learn how other, um, uh, how they're going to get ideas from these people. Right there, there may be, um, uh, let's say it's a long short equity search. There may be things that the that the candidates are in that are actually helpful for the founder to know about. So, if if I told you that a search is a portal to meeting the top 15, 20 people in your universe, you would take every one of those meetings. That's a hmm. good use of your time. So this isn't just, I need a guy to do this, get me somebody. Oh, no. This is a whole, a big holistic process that's a really a two-way street with a lot of exchange of information and That ideas. is the only way we work. And, it's, and, and I will tell you, um, we're doing a search right now where the founder was candid with me. He may not even end up hiring someone. He just sees... Um, an opportunity that he may, may, being the operative word, want to capitalize upon and wants to meet the smartest people who do this out there and then let's iterate on what makes sense. So that's not that different than BCG, where I had to sort of help a CEO draw a conclusion on whether to enter a market. And the way we went about that was through competitive benchmarking and speaking to other really smart people who sat in competitive companies and would help us to help him figure it out. So here's the obvious business question. Typically, um, headhunting and recruitment firms get paid when the hire is placed. If someone says to you, hey, I may or may not hire this person, but do all this work, do you have to set up a different sort of no, consulting no, no. We, relationship? We, we, we are a retained firm. We don't do any work ah, without- Gotcha. R- without so it's a very different structure for- than the old we, school- No, we, we are, at the risk of being totally immodest, I will tell you, for a variety of reasons, I don't think we look like anybody else. The, mm-hmm. the most prominent one of which is um, our the level we work at and the access to the people that we have. Mm-hmm. So um, it's... Yes, there are discrete roles that founders need to fill. Yes, we are hired to complete those searches, but they tend to be 
really important searches that will move the needle for the for the fund. And if it's a fund that's let's call it somewhere between ten and forty billion, that's a really important person. Sure. Um, and 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 it's not about who's looking for a job. It's not about um, uh, you know who's available. It's that's not how we come at things. If you think of a Venn diagram, mm-hmm. one bubble being best in class, and there are very few people in any asset class I'd put into that bubble that are really that good. Again, mm-hmm. there's all the work we do to make sure we're leaving no stone unturned, but. I really have a firm view on who is best in class. My firm does before we start any search. That's why I say we sort of know the answer, but we just want it. We do all the work to make sure we're not missing anybody. The second bubble is people who are disenfranchised, miserable, looking for jobs. If there's an overlap, and these days, for a variety of reasons we can get into, there's probably more of an overlap than ever before. That's a happy coincidence. It makes our job a little bit easier. All we care about, all we care about is that first bubble. And- really talented people who are who have um, accomplished something special this would not be a new, an unusual profile of a candidate somebody who oversees five billion dollars where they sit today um, has had triple digit PL every year for the last specifically triple digit yes. not, not even double digit no 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 triple this digit is this is an star. actual candidate yeah and this isn't an outlier this is like this is Every day, what we do. So, five billion um, triple-digit PNL, and the last four years have been really, really difficult. So that's quite an accomplishment, right? Mm-hmm. Much, much tougher environment, sure. which we can talk about. Um, and uh, uh, and compensation for him has typically been between twenty and thirty a year. Mm-hmm. He's not looking for a job, and he's at a great firm, by the way, right. which is not at all facing the issues other firms are facing. He's coming in to talk to me and my team because he wants to understand, given what we do, given all the smart people we meet and the clients we have and everything we see across the entire hedge fund landscape, am I? It, what do you think about the structure of where I'm sitting? Um, what is What else exists out there? Uh, here's what I've built do I take my bag of tricks and do something different? And then what does different look like? What should compensation look like for me? It's 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 an advisory um, meeting. And in that, it is our job to understand everything about his firm before he walks in, which we know. Why do we know? Because we've met plenty of other people at that right. firm um, constantly. And, um, and also understand what all his other options look like. So we have to have deep intelligence on all the other funds that he could theoretically think about and then have a point of view on which of our clients could make sense. And there are times there isn't, although it's rare, there, you know, there isn't something else because our clients tend to be very innovative and creative to attract someone like that. There are times he should stay exactly where he's at, but more often than not, we can set something up that is structurally superior to where he is, even at that level. That's a very different dynamic mm-hmm. than somebody who like needs a job. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Let's let's jump into something you alluded to earlier. The past decade has not been especially kind to most hedge funds. A lot of them have been struggling. First question from your unique vantage point: Why is that? And second. What can they do to turn things around? Okay, so I don't know that it's been the past decade. I think it's more from 2015 on. 
Okay. Okay. So I, we could. That's yeah. a whole longer. That's discussion. a whole longer discussion. It, we can talk, but, but but it's certainly been tough. It's been t- it's been a very very tough environment. But I but let's talk about what's gone on, and and we'll mm-hmm. get to timing. So um, and let's juxtapose it to when I started, which we talked about earlier, which was two thousand and three. That's when I started my firm. Uh, 500 billion of assets under management, 3,000 hedge funds. As you said, Barry, now there's 11,000 hedge funds and three and a half trillion of AUM. A lot of that growth actually came post-crisis. At the time of the, uh, 2008 was 1.4 trillion. Now it's three and a half. So that's a lot of growth actually in the last 10 years. Is that organic growth of assets or is that just capital flowing capital into. flowing in mm-hmm. literally especially post-crisis right that's when you saw the shift right and that's also you know you mentioned earlier we do um which we do uh work to find investment talent for uh the hedge fund industry but we also do work to find and this is when this started was was in 2008 we have a uh, very uh meaty practice looking at um non-investment talent across functions like president, COO, head of marketing. Um, Meaning the non-investment uh, yes, administrative yes, side, operations well, yeah, side. Well, yeah, but senior. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what what really drove that was post-crisis, you saw all the, the, the shift from fund of funds and high net worth LPs to institutional LPs. Right. Because they realized that had they invested in a hedge fund, they would have done much better than buying the market, right? Most hedge funds were down half. They were down, but they were down half as much as the S and P on average. That's about right. So, yeah. so, so institutions said, "Well, wait a second. You know, this is this is like this is an asset class that we should be investing in." And so, all of a sudden, hedge funds had to look. They had to grow up, right? It was no meaning long- legal compliance, all accounting, of that stuff, operations, right. so trading. We were suddenly they, they couldn't just be a fly by night sort of a couple of guys working, which is what it was, right. right? So we were brought in. All these founders that we did work for on the investing side said, "Well, wait a second. You know, my head of marketing isn't going to cut it anymore. Okay. My COO isn't going to cut." So we had to revamp these funds That's and make them institutional. Right. Huh. So so they would be attractive to institutional LPs. So what happened is you saw all this institutional money pouring into the and, and in, pouring into the hedge fund world. And institutional LPs were also far less sophisticated back then about hedge funds because it was a new asset class to them. So what right. so where so what happened? So we went so you had this huge growth of funds, tremendous amount of capital pouring into the industry. Um, technology became much more sophisticated, right? Think about technology in 2003 to today. So today, everyone has access to the same information. That's why it's so, that's why scale is so important in this business to Mm -hmm. have the ability to have um, data science and quant and a machine internally that can turn that data into alpha signals. Very few funds do that successfully, but it gives their people a tremendous leg up if if they do create that in-house um so so da- so everyone has access to the same data information's much more transparent right. also since 2003 you know to date you have the platforms when i say the platforms i talk about the multi-managers like citadel right. and point 72 and millennium and Ballyazney. these guys exploded they right. got so much bigger you have all these pms now sitting at these shops um, and so many more eyes and ears at conferences. 
um, and behind a shorting model that can suss out underperformance. So, so if management says something squishy at a conference, it used to have three to six months to, for that underperformance to get priced fully. Right. Now that happens in two days. Amazing. So the window of efficiency right, for performance has gotten much smaller. And LPs, as I said, have gotten much more sophisticated. And so with all of this, returns have come down because the industry is so much more crowded. Oh, and liquidity, right? Mutual um, funds and retail have shrunk. So there's far less liquidity now than there was back mm -hmm. then. Fewer companies are going public, right? With increased um, regulation and scrutiny, CEOs are like, I, I don't want to go public. If I'm a tech company, I can just go to the go to a t big tech private equity firm and and get funded that way. I don't have to subject myself to this. So huh. for all of those reasons, um, it's become far more difficult to generate alpha. And what you see, literally the last good year for most of these funds, and when I say most. One other sort of clarification point, we talk about 11,000 hedge funds. Most of them are single manager funds. They're not multi-managers. Right. And they're not multi-strats. Although, um, so the actual number of hedge funds, the individual hedge funds tend to be single manager funds. Um, Meaning six, 8,000? What, what sort of number probably, is- Probably, yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but that's the majority of funds just huh. because in order to be, think about it, there aren't- who else, you know, there's not that many other funds you can name that are multi-managers, right? right? Um, uh, and in terms of multi-strats, uh, those would be funds like Davidson Kempner, Golden Tree, Angela Gordon. These are behemoths that are in multiple strategies and managing $30 billion or whatever it is, dollars. There aren't that many funds that look like that. Most funds are, in, are actually quite small. Most hedge funds are... Uh, I think the two thirds of hedge funds are 250 million or less. Wow! So this is like a cottage industry of two bit players for the most part. Um, but Wait, I have to jump in and mm -hmm. ask you this question because mm -hmm. you you said something previously that um, you just reminded me of, which is it's a myth that being a hedge fund manager is the route to personal riches. I'm paraphrasing somewhat. But you, you've said that previously. Mm -hmm. Your explanation of this, that the vast majority of hedge funds are single manager funds with a couple of hundred million dollars, is that what underlies that statement? Um, quote, you told the Wall Street Journal, the biggest myth about working at a hedge fund is it's a quick way to um, earn great riches. Is that what's underlying That's that? That's absolutely part of what's underlying that. And the other piece which I was getting to that's underlying, that is now the, diffi the difficulty of generating alpha. So mm -hmm. returns have come. So yes, most funds are small. They're inconsequential. You're not going to make a lot of money managing like a couple hundred million, right. and many of them are even smaller than that. Um, and they're not going to exist, most of these guys, in in or or they'll just be okay managing a little bit of Muddle money. Along. And that's that's a different business model. That's not huh. what you and I are talking about, huh. right? And that's not our client base. And that's typically, and those small guys, they're lucky if they're in our office because what we're doing with them is we're popping them into bigger funds. We do a right. lot of acquisition of hedge funds as well. So mm -hmm. they'll get gobbled up by the bigger players if they're any good. And they should be thankful for that because they'll have now a lot more capital, resources, and um. Uh, artillery, for lack of a better word, to be successful. Are they being gobbled up because of their alpha generation or is it because of their assets or is it more of an no, aqua a, hire? A, a, a fund like 
um, Citadel doesn't need the assets of a $250 million right, fund. Right. Far from. That $250 million fund needs Citadel because they can't grow. They don't have scale. They can't compete for resources, talent, capital. They are they are inconsequential. However, if they've had good returns, that's a great place for them to be because now they can scale that business. So that but, becomes an aqua hire? Is that a fair uh, tech uh, term to aqu- use? Aqua hire? Yeah. It's an acquisition where you're effectively you're hiring. Yes, a that's exactly what it is. Huh. Um, so there's a lot of that uh, that we do as well. But but let me, because this is an important point, come back to why, um, to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Okay, because we are in a very different place today than we were when this industry first started, when we for, when IDW first started. Um, so so uh, when you look at returns for most funds, uh, again, single manager funds. It's like you look at uh, 15, 16, 17, and 18. The last four full years, it's a it's really bad. If it's you add up the cumulative return, it's a sea of red. Right. And pointing to this- Not even positive, negative returns. For a great number of them. Yes. It's like if you add them up, it's basically flat to down. Wow. So I look, I, I think it's just, again, it's a more difficult environment. It's harder to generate alpha. Sure. Um, and also if, when returns come down, when we're talking about fees, if returns come down, it's very difficult to justify that two and 20 fee structure. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a, a discrete example. If I'm a fund that historically generated in the good old days, 25 to 40% returns. And by the way, these guys Those were the good old days. love to quote inception to date returns, right. which is like nonsense. I mean, you, you have to, they have to say, that's great. Now let's talk about 2015 onward. Right. Okay. And then they like go quiet. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> so if you look at the returns of these funds, again, very bad for the last four years, and you look at um, asset flows in the industry, they are reflective of what is going on. The total amount of net outflows in 2018 was um, 37 billion. Do you know where we're at to date in terms of net outflows? For 2019. Yes. Go ahead. Over 60 billion. Wow. And 2018 was a year we saw a lot of big funds shut down, right? Mm-hmm. We saw um, Highfields chose to shut down, Turbion shut down, Criterion, Ivory, Folger Hill, Glen Hill, Three Bays. I mean, I can go on and on wow. and on. And yet we are 50% higher this year than last year in terms of net outflows to the industry. So LPs are pretty um, disappointed in terms of where things are at. And so back to my example, if I'm a fund which um, returned, let's say, the let's just say I know it's up higher, but let's say the S&P is up 15% and I'm a fund, a long short equity fund that runs um, 50% net long. That means 50% of my return one could get, an LP could get, than from just buying the S&P. Right. And let's say I'm up in line with the S&P this year. So 50% is beta, right? 50% well, of my return- Well, but when you're a long short, your your risk parameters are very different and- No, but it, if, 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 if I'm running net 50% long, okay. that means that um, 50% is- correlates to the S&P. Yes. That's what that means. Okay. So 50% is beta and 50% is alpha. So if I'm up 15 and the S&P is up 15%, only 7.5% is alpha, yet I'm charging 2 and 20. And right. that 20% is on both alpha and beta. So um, fifteen. So 20% of 15% is 3%. 3 plus 2 is 5. I'm charging 5% on AUM. 
uh, 5% divided by 7.5%. Just follow me with the math and, mm-hmm. you know, um, your, your, your listeners can... Uh, uh, sort they can of, keep up. Yeah, I'm sure they can kind of uh, work this out for themselves. It's a mathy group. It's a mathy group. That means two-thirds of the alpha by that equation is going to me, the hedge fund the manager, manager yeah. and one-third to the LPs. That's not a winning That's construct. That's not sustainable. But then you have hedge funds like the multi-managers where it's all alpha. Everything they generate is alpha. It's uncorrelated. Mm-hmm. It's low volatility. That's why, and and so that's a totally defensible business model. And jumping on to another subject, the startup environment, while so few funds can scale, and we have so we have more closures than startups these days. The exception to that rule are funds that splinter off from the successful multi managers. That's why we saw Exodus Point have the biggest launch in hedge fund history last year at $8 billion. That's why this year you see Woodline and Candlestick, um, two Citadel spinouts, launched with anywhere somewhere between $1 and $3 billion. Um, uh, Candlestick, I think, was between $1 and $2, and, or will be, and, and uh, uh, Woodline is between $2 and $3. These are exceptions that prove the rule and mm-hmm. also shine a light on the efficiency of this of the hedge fund universe. You have hedge funds that are struggling to come up with a fee structure that can address the lack of value creation and then you have funds like Element that are charging 2 and 40. Again, it's a fi- or it it's it's efficiency. Our last segment you discussed all sorts of really fascinating things I wanted to circle back to um in particular about the shifts in where institutions are putting their money and the fee structure. So so let's start with, with the fees. One of the things I've seen that's been kind of interesting, and you m- explained earlier why institutions hate to pay alpha prices for beta, is the rise of a so-called fulcrum fee, where there's um, a, a very modest fee on assets and the actual profit sharing fee, the the typical two and 20 part of the fee is not on uh, what the S&P provides, but only on the excess performance. So it might be instead of two and 20, 25 basis points and 30. What do, what do you think of those sorts of fee structures? Do they have any longevity? I think that we need to, um, we need to move to a model which is closer for if you're, if funds are going to charge what they charge, whatever, which is, sizable um we need to move to a structure where lps are paying for alpha that's Mm -hmm. the bottom line so whether it is they lower their fees um or they just charge on alpha that has to be where the industry is going or and or here's another thought there are hedge funds which um really and this is true of a, of a lot of the single manager long short equity cubs uh, long short equity funds whether tiger cubs or related some of these guys are really best at generating long alpha they're really not that good on the short side and if you look closely at the composition of, of their return the shorts are actually volatility enhancers and alpha detractors mm-hmm. but they have to short because they're hedge funds right? right they can't charge tw- two and 20 without with just having a long only model and it's very but, hard to short when the market has at least for the first half of this bull market just rampage straight up from 09 to 20 let's call it 15 it, it's just 16? it's not there it's they're not it's not what they do best there mm-hmm. are um and they're also not set up um, to do it as well as the multi-managers that have 
much broader and deeper resources um, to help these guys be successful um, with respect to with respect to managing factor volatility and coming up with single name alpha shorts. Hmm. So the best thing the these more concentrated directional managers could do would be to say, okay, I'm best at generating long alpha. Therefore, let me set myself up in a way where I maybe it, it they create an alternative long only fund mm-hmm. where and I think this is the way of this is how a lot of these funds are going to go. Um, I mean, you recently saw in the last year Soroban even it really converted most of their assets to long only. And mm-hmm. so the idea being, um, if I'm best at generating long alpha and I'm not that good at managing short-term volatility and coming up with uh, with alpha with alpha shorts alpha alpha generating single name shorts, but I need two to three or four years to let my thesis play out, then you know what you know maybe you just charge on alpha at the end of that time period and that, so that's you a have very duration different structure and, and it's a totally different structure but that's the point you need to figure out what you're best at it's so hard now um to generate consistent alpha and you need to figure out what um structure is going to enable you to be competitive and that may mean locking up capital for a longer period of time and charging less or just charging on alpha. But the idea that one size fits all when it comes to fees, no matter what your investing style is or how much beta you employ, um, is ridiculous. You know, the guy charging to the same, it's the same fee structure for the guy running net 30 and running net 60. Mm -hmm. So I think there should be a hurdle um, with respect to how much is alpha and how much is beta. You mentioned how many uh, hedge fund closings that were in 2018. Typically, when a fund shuts down, does that money leave the space or does it just rotate to a different hedge fund, um, at least from an institutional perspective? Well, given the trend line I shared with you earlier, which mm-hmm. is we have now $60 billion of net outflows to the industry, that's, that's net outflows. Um, I think money is actually leaving the industry. That's where I think things are going. And so it could go to another fund. But the problem is there are so few good options. It doesn't want to go to another fund that has had the same meh or crappy performance. (laughs) A lot of the better funds candidly are closed. Right. That's the truth. Yeah, for sure. Um, So and that's why you see when when guys splinter off from the funds that are closed and LPs are salivating for access to, they, they're they the ones that scale overnight and there are only so many of those. So that's why I think we're seeing the uh, the aggregate amount of net outflows and also the trend line. The, the thing on the trend line is the only other year in hedge fund history where we had four consecutive quarters of net outflows was 2008 to 2009. Really? That's amazing. We are probably... Q1 2019 was the only other time in hedge fund history we saw four consecutive quarters. I get, and that was and and Q1 2019 this year we had 15 billion of net outflows. We're now at 60 something. So I guarantee you, we're now in our sixth quarter wow. of net outflows. That is first time ever in hedge fund history. Wow, that's amazing. So the the f- I don't want to call it the flavor of the month. It's it's a little too uh, glib. But it's clear that private equity is the shiny new thing. Lots of money seems to be flowing in that direction. Is that who is the beneficiary of the outflows uh, from hedge funds as 
If you're an institution and you know your expected returns for equity is going to be 5 or 6% and bonds are yielding less than 2% and alternatives are promising 8, 9, 10%, do these outflows end up going to private equity? Um they do, but you know, interestingly, and and it's true that in the last four or five years, while hedge funds have suffered because their returns have come down, um, and for most of them, fees have had to readjust or in the process of readjusting, uh, private equity was was uh, had the hot hand because rates were low and uh, and it was you know it was easier to to buy companies. Um, I think that. But it's but, you know, I think what we're seeing now is the merge merging of um, public and private. You see private Mm -hmm. equity firms trying to get into the public markets. You see um, uh, hedge funds uh, developing their private uh, investing expertise. And so I think each one is trying to capitalize upon the other's revenue stream. Hmm. That's quite interesting. Um, One of the things I I read about you that I thought was pretty um, amusing there was a, a event, a gala that you helped put together earlier this year, and one of the co-producers of the gala was Stevie Cohen of uh, Now Point Seventy Two, and he discussed what a challenge it's been for so many hedge funds, and basically said no one's winning the hedge fund game. There's this recruitment process where people go from one fund to another to another and the only one who wins is you <laughs> he kind of dragged you a little no, bit no 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 it was um, <laughs> no just to be clear the gala was in honor of me i was being okay. honored so mm-hmm. um we um, so it was a little bit of roasting taking place it was a place. little bit of roasting i think i hope i think it was he was introducing me uh-huh. i was the honoree so i th- i think it was mentioned so it was good nature and okay but it's also because con- when you read it it's yeah. like wow stevie cohen's really dragging a lot no, but it's I, nothing I don't like think that it was seen that way i think his point was um, there is a war for talent because there's so little of it, right? right? There are only, I said it myself, there are only so many people I put in that first bubble of best in class in right. each asset class. That is true. Um, and you see it with the returns of funds or so, only so many funds that are performing and only so many people within those funds. P&Ls However, don't lie. P&L doesn't lie. That's what I love about this industry. It's real time. It's mark to market. You know where you stand at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but... Um, you know the so and we so that is true it's it, there's an intense competition to attract the best it is also true we tend to be in the mix of it mm-hmm. um but the the other thing that's true is as much as there are only so many good people there are also so there are only so many places those people are going to be attracted to and steve runs a great shop point 72 is one of them um other places like citadel millennium Davidson Kempner, Golden Tree, you know, th- there are there are there are places that have built something unique mm-hmm. and are going to be able to do something special to attract talent and make them more successful because of the very fact that they are on those at those funds or on those platforms. And that's what creates a symbiotic relationship between talent and the best places that exist and myself. At the end of the day, we IDW has been very deliberate about who we choose to work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but there are you plenty. You just did. Plen- no, no, no. <laughs> in terms of the ones we choose not to work oh, with. Oh, okay. <laughs> but because we need, it is as good as I'd like to think we are, at the end of the day, the people we are dealing with on the talent side, they are very sophisticated. They are very smart. And, 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 um, they're not going to go some, someplace that isn't a market step up 
from where they are today with a pathway that is unique. And, and nor would I feel good about trying to convince them to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I have tremendous conviction around the, uh, the the I have to have tremendous conviction around the um, um, what around our clients and what they built and what they can provide for talent. And um, and and so again, I think it was a joke. But at the end of the day, there are only so many places that also talent really wants to go. Can you stick around a bit? I have so many more questions. Mm -hmm. We have been speaking with Alana Weinstein. She is the founder and CEO of the IDW Group, a leading boutique for hedge funds, family offices, and private equity, searching out top talent. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things hedge fund and alternatives. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Alana, thank you so much um, for doing this. I've been looking forward to this. You really are somebody who is maybe in one of the most unique spots in the entire alternative space. You see everything, you know everybody, your perspective as to what's going on in hedge funds, private equity, and maybe not quite as much venture capital, but I know that's certainly an area that is not outside your um, observations. Is unique too strong a word? I don't think anybody else has the vantage point that you do about what's going on in the industry. I, I, I mean, yes, it's it's completely accurate. I mean, because, I hope that doesn't sound like no, I'm no, blowing no. smoke it's, or it's, anything. It's accurate precisely because what we do every day is meet with the most talented people in the industry, not because they're looking for jobs, but because they want our perspective. And it's a virtuous loop. If all you do is meet with really smart people <laughs> that are best in class, you build a picture, a composite of what is driving the industry and what the opportunity set is and where it's going and um and so we have so we have insight into what is going on at every single fund who is making money how lumpy the pool of talent is how how um precarious each fund is like what situation they're in um like i mean i often say if lps knew what we know <laughs> um, you know, they'd be pulling capital left, right, and center and reallocating uh, to the places that we tell them to. I have a very clear sense, as does my team, 
on what's what. And, and you know, I don't think anyone else does because the level we're recruiting at, both in terms of breadth um, and, uh, and, and just the sheer talent that we have coming in the door um, across every asset class and every geography, I think, I think is second to none. And it does give us insight into what to look for. And what differentiates the BS from the non-BS, mm-hmm. the good from the great? There's there are really specific things we're looking for. So let me ask you a little bit about something related to that. You know, when when I look at different funds, and I've spoken to a lot of people from a lot of different funds, very different personalities who founded them, who are running them, the corporate cultures seem to vary dramatically. Uh, Oak Tree Capital, very different than Bridgewater, very different than Point Seventy Two. How important when you are looking to match somebody for a very senior position is that corporate culture? Um, it it's definitely important, but I don't know that there's um as much variability as you as you might think. Um, Am I the, overemphasizing the, Bridgewater because yeah. it's such a unique I beast? I mean, yeah, that's sort of an outlier unto itself, okay. right? So let's. And just by the way, to- full full disclosure, I've had Ray on three times. Mm-hmm. I love him. I'm fascinated by him. He's a brilliant um, guy. Some people find him quirky. I just find him really fascinating. But there there can be no doubt that Bridgewater is not the typical right. So corporate so culture. let's let's put that sort of to the side. Um, I think the the biggest differentiators are um, how much it's look, no one wants to work in a jerky culture. So mm-hmm. it, and neither do I want to work with jerky founders. That's right. not um, I'm using intentionally a I nicer word. The no blank <laughs> the real rule. One I'm thinking, right. yeah, exactly. The no a-hole rule exactly. is what everybody that's really refers what, right. to. Right. So that's consistent. That's not, you know, right. and, and people and, and at the end of the day, what's really interesting to me is there are certain founders who are dear clients and friends of mine who, you know, ha- there's this perception that they're like big bad wolf and really just tough and and make crazy decisions and like, you know, I can be there one day and blown out the next. And the reality is these are some of the most measured down to earth and and I will say it, good people I know, mm-hmm. but they also have great commercial instincts and are not afraid to make tough decisions. And if you're really talented, you want to be in an environment where you can shine and aren't going to be dragged down by a bunch of dead wood around you right. where your 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 compensation gets netted every year because the founder's just like too wimpy to make tough decisions, you know? So, so let me push back on you a little bit there. I won't even say the funds because uh, we'll see if you uh, uh, have a sense of what I'm talking about. There are funds where people get hired at and they know from the day they're hired, I will eventually be fired for either good cause or not because that's the way this manager operates. Is that, is that a fair assessment about some funds? No. I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I, there may be funds that fall in that category. That's not my client base. Mm-hmm. It's really not. Um, uh, there are, uh, I come back to, there are, there are, I think the best founders are also great business builders. Uh-huh. And when they look at their investment talent, they don't view it differently than a portfolio. They double down on their winners and they cut their losers. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I want if I am a talented investment professional, because the biggest issue in this industry from talent's perspective is um, 
is not compensation deflation. It's it's if a fund does poorly and I did poorly, it's a pay for performance industry. I get that I'm not going to get paid and I'm okay with that. The biggest issue is when I sit at a fund and this is not exceptional what I'm telling you. This is par for the course. Mm -hmm. I sit at a fund that is eight billion of AUM or 10 billion. Okay, these are big. These are big funds. Um, and I am one of two or three people that consistently drive P&L every single year. And remember, the last three or four years have been really tough, mm-hmm. present year excluded. But again, a lot of beta in the returns for this sure. year and also snap back from being down last year, right? right? right. Just riding the market back up. So you look for those, the last four years, excluding this year, I and even this year, I am the I am one of two or three primary P&L drivers at a fund which has sizable assets. And what are the other people doing? Year after year, they're not pulling their weight. They're not really contributing. And I'm getting netted because the founder Meaning, has to take from my pocket to pay them. Me, right. So, so Those guys have to head out the door straight right. after so, that. So this idea of like, I have job security, but at the end of the day, um, well, I said, you know, of course you do. You're the star within the fund. And the bigger question is, why do the other people have job security? Okay. They should be like the founder has a fiduciary duty to his LPs to be retiring and retaining the best people. And part of retaining them is getting rid of the ones that aren't performing and making room for, you know, better people. Am I am I hearing you say that people think hedge funds are cutthroat and you're suggesting some of them aren't cutthroat enough then or or say it less emotionally, less um, uh, inflammatorily? There are a lot of funds that simply aren't acting as a meritocracy. I think that founders are often very loath to make tough decisions, and we can call that not acting as a meritocracy or not being cutthroat or just candidly being wimps. I think that there is an element of the optics of, ooh, what are LPs going to think if I fire these three people? LPs would be very smart when they do their all their operational due diligence right. if i was an lp here's what i would be asking i'd want to know that's let's a just question say, i have for you by yeah, the way okay <laughs> what <laughs> what so let me ask you the question what should lps be doing and what aren't they doing today so um and everybody I, knows lps limited partners not the fund managers or the actual general partnership i think that they should um they should find out from the founder and you know it's hard because if it's a single manager fund the founder at the end of the day is the ultimate decision maker right, right. of what goes into the portfolio and how the portfolio is constructed but ask him and i'm going to use long short equities one because it's 40 percent of the hedge fund universe and two just to be illustrative it's an easy example to understand mm-hmm. ask him okay where did your winners come from this year in right. what industry was it industrials? Was it TMT? Was it healthcare? Ah, it was healthcare. What about last year? What drove PL? Oh, again, it was healthcare and industrials. What about the year before? What about the year before? And we get that at the end of the day, the founder, again, is the ultimate decision maker. But again, just behind the scenes, that's more gray than you. Those people have tremendous influence if they're senior and they're right. good on the portfolio. So, um, the, so LPs should also be asking where did where were your biggest losers and you're going to see patterns across the biggest winners and across the biggest losers and then they should be asking the founder what are you doing about getting rid of the guys who are covering the the three sectors right. that actually have been a net drain on pnl what are you doing about um developing the 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 three sector heads that have generated the most pnl how do you manage paying those guys when you have to when you have these other guys that you have to pay right. like these are the tough questions 
that founders really need to be held accountable for. Mm-hmm. And and also LP should be looking at who left. Were those people that were PL generators to the fund or were those people that were that were pushed out, right? Because they didn't do well. And if what they're seeing is a trend line of the best people leaving and they have to figure out a way to get at that, right. we know that because we're interviewing these people and we see the composite of the entire PL of the fund and who did what. If the best people are leaving, you should be pulling capital. And if the and if the the people who um, did not make money are the ones who are leaving and being managed out, then you should deploy because that's a founder who understands how to manage his team and is managing them again like a portfolio, unemotionally and making decisions in their best interest. So you're you're really answering a question I was about to ask you, which is what should founders do to retain their best people? And what you're effectively saying is pay and bonus the high high performers and cut loose the people uh, who are the non and, and I'll go one further. I think that founders need to be willing to go to zero for themselves in times where they don't have much of a performance fee. And that has been true for the last four years. Even this year, a lot of funds may be doing better, but they have a high watermark from mm-hmm. the previous year or group of years. Meaning that what you took as a profit um, as a uh, the twenty percent um, profit distribution. Once we fall off of those market highs, you don't take another profit distribution till you get back over yeah, that. If you high. lost money last year, you first have to make that back up right. before you start to get paid. Right. Right. So if I'm a guy who for the last three or four years has generated tremendous P and L for the firm, and there are guys who come in to meet with us who literally are. 100% of the PL of the fund or right. 150% of the PL of the Meaning fund. other people are a drag on exactly. the returns. If the founder would be wise to go into his pocket, go into his management fee and and pay that person, right? So that's that they, they don't need to do that's to what they that. need to do and 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 also be clear about how they're coming up with the number. For many of these guys, if they're not sitting at a multi-manager which is formulaic mm-hmm. or they don't have even if they have points in the fund, a lot of the times how um, there's a jump ball, which is discretionary. If they don't, if the if the absolute number is disappointing because times are not good and there isn't much of a performance fee, and also assets have dwindled, so the management fee is smaller. Founders need to give people insight into how they're coming up with the number, so it's not this black box. Um, they they again, it comes back to running a business, not just managing a P and L, and that's a mind shift for a lot of founders because they mm-hmm. grew up. What they'd know best is is investing, right? right? Not managing people. They need to manage their fund like a business, not because not like a kleptocracy, which is how a lot of these guys view it. <laughs> that, that that work there. A kleptocracy. So let me flip the question from what founders need to do to retain their best people to some of those best people, that talent. What are they looking for? What makes them decide not only that I'm ready to move, but I'm gonna go there mm-hmm. or here? What what are they looking for? So the most important, th- so the things they're looking for haven't changed. They're just more difficult today to come by. They're looking for stability, mm-hmm. right? When you see funds like big funds back in, we started with Eaton Park and Perry going out of business and then all the others I mentioned last year and there'll be more to come. Um, that means that there's no more terra firma under their feet. And by the way, you even look at funds that are still, that are big, that, have, that are well-known names. Mm-hmm. They're still existing today. It may be interesting for your listeners to look at the AUM drops of these funds. Greenlight, okay? And this is, by the way, I'm going back to not circa 2003 or 2007, let's say right before the crisis, 2007 or two. 
I'm talking about in the last few years. So this is how precipitous the AUM drops were. Greenlight was $12 billion, Now it's th- sub $3 billion. Corvix wow. was $7 billion, Now it's $2 billion. Discovery was $15 billion, Now it's $3 billion. Fir tree was $13 billion, Now it's $5 billion. Scopia, a year ago, one year ago, 2018, was almost $7 billion. You know what it is today? Under $2 billion. Wow. So these are, again, like only so many funds even get into the billion-dollar territory, right? So these are the these are the sort of the bigger names, the bigger guys, and they are a shell of their former selves. So stability is like very hard to come by these days. And you may think, oh, that's a well-known fund. That's stable. Nah, not, not the case. Um, the second thing that's really important is netting, which we talked about, not being in a construct where you're not going to continuously get netted, right? You mean when, by netted, you mean your payment is uh, a little bit of a kibbutz where you're not necessarily well winning all of your uh, your P&L. It gets spread around as, to the whole as, organization. As a guy just said to me the other day, and I love this phrase, and I told him I'm going to steal it. He said, I feel like labor arbitrage. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's going on. In other on words, here. you're a high performer, they're a low performer, and everybody I'm generating all this P&L. No one else around here is pulling their weight. And every year, I'm paid a fraction of what I should be paid. So that, that's a guy ripe to be a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And does management not understand the frustration of a high performer? Like we are not talking about uh, um, a, a low octane sort of people work on an hourly basis. Uh, this is these are people who are willing to live and die on eating what they kill, and it, it's it's a really. Um, aggressive industry it sounds like some firms are sort of trying to soften it and make it more of a group kumbaya thing i think there's a look there's a lot of inertia in this industry we saw this with lps too this pace of net outflows is only just picking up now for a Mm -hmm. long time lps were sort of just hoping things would get better well the consultants Um, always say to them hey this is an off year Uh, right just give it another two or three years and it'll be fine and after 10 years of hearing that, people finally figured yeah, out it, right. it ain't, ain't going to be fine. Right. right. So um, so I think there's an element of hoping that things change, hoping that the performance gets better. Um, and, 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 you know, you have to understand these senior people that we're speaking to have been where they've been for, in many cases, over a decade. They have a real relationship with the founder. They help build the fund. Um, they are partners where they're sitting. So it's not as transactional. You know, as one might think, and and I and they they feel loyal, they feel embedded. But at a certain point, the chickens do come home to roost. And I think we're kind of at that tipping point. We really are at a tipping point in the industry, both with respect to frustration on the part of talent, frustration on the part of LPs. um, uh, And, um, you know, I think that it's it the shakeout is it's happening. We see we see money leaving the industry. And the guys who figured it out are the absolute clear winners. And they're going to gobble up the best talent. And um, that's they represent stability. They don't net their talent. And the other few things, just to answer your question, are that these guys do best, the, the winners. Um, talent also, what you asked me what talent's looking for, they want to be made better. They mm-hmm. want to improve. So, you know, in an environment where returns are so hard to come by, how can I be better at shorting? How can I be better at managing um, volatility? Um, wh- how do I how do I improve? And the and the best places, which are typically um, that have really uh, sophisticated uh, technology and data 
um, and risk management are the best multi-managers. They give these guys an unbelievable feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So they say to them, listen, let's look at your P&L. Um, you are, uh, a lot of it came from, um, you know, it's actually not like a lot of it came from beta or came from factor exposure. That's not repeatable. Mm -hmm. So giving them transparency into how they make money sets them up for better success in the future. And, and there are very few places that, that have the same tools and resources um, as some of the guys that I mentioned. All the uh, big scalable giant shops that, that are well, not afraid to spend the, that money. The ones, but that's the last part of your sentence is key. There are funds. It's amazing how few funds use scale to their competitive advantage. There's a fund I'm thinking of, which is north of $20 billion. Right. They have nothing internally. They really? basically Nope. They have two people that manage half the AUM. Those two people literally have like two people underneath them. Wow. And there's no infrastructure. There's no, that's I think shocking. there's like five data scientists at the entire firm. There's no real, they haven't built the fund in a way which bestows competitive advantage on its people. And the problem with that construct is if the two golden geese leave the fund, the, there's no infrastructure, there's nothing there. No, they're there after yeah. that. So you, you hinted at something earlier I want to get explicit about regarding partnerships, how should these firms be thinking about succession planning? Not just if the founder is hit by a bus, but what happens when they retire? What happens when they want to spend more time away from the office? What should firms be doing about that? Well, you know, the industry is still relatively young, so we haven't had that much succession that's gone on, right? So the same way I'm still running IDW and I'd like to think I'm still young, right? You are. Thank you. Many of these funds that started about the same time, there's no succession going on. These guys are in their 40s, right? But for... But for the but there are some um, that have done it successfully, and I think we can look to them for how to do this. One, it can't just be a found one founder in his brain that LPs are investing in, right? And a and a, and a like a bunch of uh, uh, investment analysts around him. They have to feel like there is um, uh, an infrastructure there which will continue to do as well with or without him. And I think there are two models that lend themselves to it. One is the multi-manager construct where there are multiple PMs, right, that have autonomy and are managing capital. And there's also sophisticated risk management in-house to help them be as successful as possible. That's not the founder every day walking the floor, right. making sure these guys are thinking about the world in the right way. And, and, sifting through their ideas and saying this is interesting this isn't let's size this let's short that this is this is the car that sort of you know runs on its own mm -hmm. um and then the other model would be the multi strategy model um and we saw this very recently with um tom kempner stepping down name on the door davidson kempner one of the original founders and turned over the reins to tony usiloff and they did not miss a beat and the reason they were able to do this is it's a real partnership mm -hmm. with 14 engaged partners. Um, Decision-making is done in unison. This is It's not like partnership. A lot of hedge funds, partnership is a nice thing to put on the business card, but at the end of the day, it's still this it's sort of- a managing partner and that's it. It's exactly. So this, is, this operates kind of like, I think it was modeled in some ways after the old Goldman Sachs partnership. It right. really um, is a group of engaged people who- make the important investing and operating decisions for the firm 
And when they when Tony moved up, they very wisely took two of their people of, of that group of 14 and made them um, co deputy managing partners, signaling to LPs there's already a plan in place right. when and if Tony retires. And the place operates again in a way where the um, strength of the firm and its secret sauce is not just one guy at the top. So I have to ask you a question because you and I are both talking about this guy and that guy, guys, guys, guys. Mm -hmm. What is to be said? I'm going to mansplain the lack of women in hedge funds to you would be pretty hilarious. (laughs) Why are there such a lack of women in the industry? Um, Generally speaking, it's true in finance, but it is really acute in hedge funds. Why is that? And is that ever going to change in our lifetimes? I have thought about this question a lot. Um, So there are a couple of things. One is there is a catch-22 at work Mm -hmm. where, look, people are attracted to industries and into roles where they see people like themselves having success. Has to be a role model somewhere. There isn't right now. So are there any high profile women hedge fund managers? Um, there is uh, a handful, but it's really just a hardly any. There's Lita Braga, mm-hmm. who spun out of Bluecrest, and there is um, uh, Don Fitzpatrick, who's the CIO of Soros. But those are really the only two that come to mind that run scale businesses. Mm-hmm. And Don didn't found Soros, right? right? That's so that's a different some guy named uh, Soros. I think right? so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like General Custer's white horse, right? <laughs> um well, what color was that? Uh so um uh so so you know there are women quote unquote air quotes running funds, but they're two bit players. Like they don't right. you know, they that just it's not they're they not big matter. influential no. funds. And so and and again, think about the fact that back in 16, 10% of the AUM, which was around 2.9 trillion back then, was controlled. So 10% of hedge funds controlled 90% of the AUM. Right. So that's even smaller now. It is so very these, much a fat head long tail. Yeah. It is not the normal distribution. You're right. So back to women. So the one, they don't really have role models. Two, Again, the industry is still fairly young when you compare it to finance, like investment banking, or um, you compare it to consulting, or you compare it to medicine. Those are all industries that have been around much longer, so they've had more of a chance to catch up to for you know to make it for for women to um, have a, a bigger percentage. But when when we look at things like law and medicine and consulting, women are forty plus percent. When we look at finance, there's been a lot of gains in the past decade, but it's still really tilted towards the male side. Um, I I can name two dozen chief economists, uh, market strategists. I mean, there's tons of women in very visible places today that didn't exist 20 years ago, but finance but it's is still, still notorious. Barry, it's still so much better than the hedge fund industry. It really is. So We're that, that's there. where I was going, so that the hedge fund industry is worse than finance it is so, and finance is bad. Right. So fine. So that's again, my mansplaining about the lack of women. Right. In fi- I always find my, I always laugh at myself when I'm like, are you mansplaining this to harsh? She knows more about this stuff than <laughs> no, you ever I mean, will. It, but it's true. There are so few women. So we need to do a better job of pulling women in earlier and explaining to them that this is an industry that is not just hospitable to women. We are dying for women. It mm-hmm. is rare that I do a search um, where the client at some point does not say to me, 
you know, we'd love for the the successful candidate to be a woman. And and the pro- but the problem is we have a fiduciary duty to hire the best person, not the best woman. Right. And so by the time we get involved, which is really at the most senior end of the industry, if you think about a mountain, if at the base there were so few you know, when, it's that pool. It, you start pool. out with it a pool that's ninety five percent. And then by the time we get there, statistically, no, it's the odds no, are very much against. It. Right. And so I think that that um, that's the issue, as well as um, the fact that there's something about the P&L and the volatility of the P&L that is that is, um, you know, it's it. It's you can't control it. Even in private right. equity, you have more control than you do in the public markets. You have ten-year money. You have full information. Right. You're one of eight on a deal team. Trump tweets something. The portfolio isn't going to go haywire. You're not marked to market. You're tick not by marked tick. to market. That's a huge so advantage. So here, you can be the darling of the industry one moment and right. be out of business the next. And that is not a, that also, um, you know, can be scary. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if that is less appealing to women, mm-hmm. but maybe that factors into it as well. Huh. That that's that's quite fascinating. So in terms of coming uh trying to bring women into the industry earlier on, uh last week and I am trying to, you know, I'm doing what I can. Last week I actually um went out to the University of Michigan to be the keynote speaker for the their undergraduate investment conference, which mm-hmm. is like the the Sony conference blue. for for exactly for undergrads. And uh, really to signal to them that this is an industry that wants women and try to encourage all these undergrads to come if they're interested, like this is a this is a um, uh, play. This is an industry that is salivating for talent and um, it is totally meritocratic. And if you're talented, nobody cares if you're a man, woman or otherwise. It's Mm -hmm. just this is like, you know, it's that's a uh, that's what the focus is on. And one of the women toward the end, when we had the Q&A, asked me the question of what can women do? How do we become more um, fearless? How do we go for it? How do we set ourselves up to be more successful in life? And I, you know, I answered the question in terms of just um, uh, having, the, you know, you may not have the confidence early on, but that comes with success. And um, building it over time and just sort of not, you know, going for it. That's the bottom line. But I, but I, um, what bothered me about the question is I do think that there is a, um, sometimes a, a little bit of a, uh, orientation of like, how do we, how can we be, um, how can we set ourselves up better for success? How can we be more, as she put it, fearless? Why are we coming fr- at the world as though we have a handicap? Everybody's scared when they're young. Everybody's scared to make a mistake. Every, you know, but you just whether whether you're a man or a woman, you you have to sort of buck up and and as I said, go for it. And this idea that um, because we're female, we're somehow disadvantaged by our very nature pisses me off. And I sort of said that to her. I said, there's like, you know, this sort of cotton padded idea that you need special handling or there's something about you that we need to treat differently. Why? Right. I mean, I, you know, as long as we're we're all being good actors and behaving correctly, why should we? Why do why do we need sort of a different way of treating you? I well, don't that understand as, that. As long as is a loaded phrase, because I recall the early days in my career on a trading desk, 
It was horrific. But that, it was that can't not... go on anymore, and it doesn't. You see Ken, what happened with Ken Fisher's comments. Right. Right. So it's and not way, good business. Ken... It's not good business. It's not going to lead to a successful outcome. And it, I come back to, at the end of the day, there are so few talented people. If that person happens to be a woman, there is no hedge fund manager in his right mind that will do anything to make the environment inhospitable to her. Not to mention, it's you can't get away with that stuff anymore. So the world has changed completely. I, I don't know if it's changed completely. I'm sh- Again, like you know, we just saw with Fisher, there are still people who mm-hmm. act out of turn. But in an industry that is measured minute to minute, and you're only as good as um, your last P&L, you cannot do things which are going to scare away the very people that can have a uh, real impact on your business. It's just, it's so, there's so much clarity in terms of who the winners and losers are. And to have half the population um, not be a source of talent is insanity. And there's no hedge fund manager that would think that way. And, you know, that's when going we, to be successful. When, when we see the academic studies on male versus female mutual fund managers, um, the data shows that the women tend to do better than the men. The women don't have the same ego issues. They certainly don't suffer from the test, what some people have called testosterone poisoning, that they are more measured and less uh, aggressive in a negative way than the male fund managers. So the data even supports female fund managers can outperform male fund managers with without any change to who they are, what they do. You know, it's funny. I had drinks with a woman that I'll not going to name her, but I was so pleased when she did end up being the successful candidate for search we did a year ago. Um, very successful PM, one of the few who ran a lot of capital where she was. She ran $2 billion, Now she's running $4 billion, mm-hmm. has a real team underneath her. And we were talking about somebody that she recently had to let go. And it was just so I had such a smile playing on my face as she was describing how emotional he was. Right. And he wasn't making rational decisions. Right. And he was constantly complaining about, you know, where, where his P&L was at. And she's like, I know where your P&L is at. I'm watching it. Get with it and fix it. And so, you know, it's. It, Anyway, it's just a sort of sidebar on there is no difference. These um, flighty emotional men. Well, I mean, how really? Can we how can them? I exactly what I have to deal with? Um, the, but yeah. but you know that is a genuine perception issue, and the reality is how. So this was a question I didn't get to, but I wanted to ask. Uh, you have said the people best suited for this industry are the ones who remain cool under pressure. That that's a quote of yours which certainly is who's going to argue with that. How can you identify that in a sort of casual conversation until you see them under pressure? How do you know how they're going to react? Well, it's less about the person, you know, the how they act, so to speak. It's more about the outcome. So what I'm words, looking- In other the decisions, not necessarily yeah, I'm looking at consist- the hair on fire. Consistent P&L over time. And whether you do that by standing on your head or, mm-hmm. you know, crossing your fingers and toes and screaming or whatever the case may be, if you can generate, particularly in the last four or five years where it's been so difficult and there's not been this tailwind mm-hmm. uh, to performance, if you can generate consistent P&L over time, that to me says you are somebody who possesses um, a whole bunch of other qualities which come with that. You're somebody who is flexible and humble. You are you're not so wedded to your positions that you can't um, take new inputs and shift, you know, on a dime where you need to. Um, you um, 
Uh, uh, and, and, and so, so looking at PNL over a period of time gives me insight as well as some of the, you know, what makes some people vulnerable, which is the founder is often more volatile than they are mm-hmm. in that. Again, I'm not talking about behavior, although that comes with it sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you mean decision court, making, I mean, decision making. It's a guy who comes into my office and says, you know, this happened two years ago. Um, he sat at a large hedge fund. He was responsible for a big, for a big chunk of it. And um, uh, the, even though he was doing well, the fund was not. And he had he was the most robust uh, uh, short had the most robust short book within the fund, which was not the founder strength and, or, or skill set. And the founder came in over the top, took off all his alpha generating shorts, put on index shorts and erased a lot of this guy's P&L. Right. So, you know, it's we've that, all seen that. We've right. all witnessed so that elsewhere. enough of that kind of stuff happening is, you know, it's the differentiation between the founder acting out of sort of panic and emotion and not really understanding what's going on. And this guy pointing to consistent PL and where he's gotten tripped up is when he's been overridden by um, somebody who isn't taking a more measured approach. Can we assume that guy is no longer at that fund? We can. <laughs> I have a million more questions for you, but I know I don't have you uh, all day. So why don't I go to some of my... Uh, Favorite questions. This hasn't been too painful, has it? It's been a lot of fun. Oh, I'm so glad you've said that. So let's jump. And I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question because you were born in Brooklyn and moved to Manhattan. Um, But let me ask you the question. What was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? Okay, Barry. You don't drive. You got it. I was, you are the first person. I've been waiting for someone to say that to me. Well, there Either, you go. And I was expecting like a millennial to say, oh, I Uber or I right. zip drive. See, I'm, I'm ahead of my time. You are. So you um, never owned a car. Never owned a car. Never drove a car. I took a few. Really? I took a few lessons uh, like 10 years ago. And right. I was just like, this is a waste of time. I'm never, I'm never going to create the muscle memory to know how to do this. I'll probably kill someone or myself. So let, if we let's, get you on a track, it's a lot of fun. Okay. You'd be surprised. Can we do like the, what do you call them? The bumper cars? Or the, oh, sure. The, okay. So now those bumper cars are all electric. There's a place called RPM. There's a bunch of them around. There's one in Farmingdale. And it's just the most amount of I fun would love you can that. have. It's a blast. I should do that with my 15-year-old who tells me, in stark contrast to myself, he's going to have his learner's permit when he's 16, which well, I'm terrified of. But, you know, he's it's such a different generational on thing. Pre-internet, if you lived outside of a major city, a car represented freedom. Now, everybody's plugged into that. everything. Yeah. It's just such a different... So let's talk a little bit about... Um, you, what's the most important thing we don't know about Alana Weinstein? Although I think you may have just revealed it. I think you, I may have just revealed it. That um, you never have driven a car. I've never driven a car. Yeah. And, and you know what? Everyone in this industry knows me as like a very, um, which is true to the point, um, no nonsense, say it like it is businesswoman, all true. But Barry, I do have a soft and gooey center. Right. I yeah. don't believe that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what is your soft and gooey center? Like what? What? Uh, it's meaning what? Um, so what is what is your? So maybe this is the thing we don't know about you. What you work in a tough industry, uh-huh. male dominated, very uh-huh. sharp elbowed, very competitive. What are you soft and gooey about? And you brought this up, not me. Yeah. I mean, it's just more. You know, it's my. It's my 
alter ego, non-work persona. It's uh, you have to have a yin and a yang. And okay, that's fair. My yang or yin or whatever you want to, whatever the opposite one is that we're referring to is, uh, you know, it's just you, you have to enjoy life. And, and that's a big part of who I am. Fair, fair enough. Who are your mentors? Who has influenced your career? Well, it might be a cliched answer, but my parents are mm-hmm. tremendous mentors. Um, uh, my mom, uh, in particular, even though she was a stay-at-home mom, she is an incredibly bright woman who kind of managed the family. I'd say, in some ways, similarly to a how a CEO manages his, you know, best employees, but with lots of love. Very. But very no nonsense, very kind of like the advice I gave this girl at U of M, like mm-hmm. get up and go for it. Stop whining. Just get it done. And um, and that gave me, you know, and and forcing my and that made me strong um, and creates wins. And then it creates real confidence. Um, other mentors were just, you know, I've cultivated great relationships, um, great relationships with my clients who've given me great advice along the way. Um, uh, I, I mean, everywhere I've worked, I've just, um, I've had the good fortune of finding great people who, um, I learned a lot from. Hmm, Quite interesting. Um, tell us about your favorite books. What do you like to read when you're not out recruiting talent? I love books by, and I think there's some commonality between them. I love John Krakauer, Tom Mm -hmm. Wolfe, Michael Lewis. They all write real stories. Um, that are almost read like thrillers. And mm-hmm. Tom Wolfe is fiction, but he's really writing about moments in time that right. are real. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities yeah, was I mean, loosely based totally, on, totally. on fact. Right. Even I Am Charlotte Simmons is based on, you know, real life. Do you know that book? No, I don't. Oh, it's great. It's uh, I read it a few years ago. It's a woman's, um, a young woman's uh, travails and experience at undergrad, I think it's it's meant to be a Big Ten's type school mm-hmm. and everything she goes through. It's a very thick book, but I thought it was so on point mm-hmm. in terms of what the undergraduate experience is like. I'm sure based on characters that he knew well, maybe even his own family. Sure. Give us some more book titles. You mentioned a number of authors. Um, I have I, to think The Big Short is right in your love, sweet spot. Love. In fact, it's funny you bring that up. I was on a long flight a few weeks ago and I didn't reread the book but I did see the movie again and I actually called a number of my clients and said you have to watch this again and I made my son watch it again it's so good and I have so much respect for how Michael Lewis did that how he you know he fought it just it's so many it's a tough subject to understand for a lay person right he totally explained it well yep. and he takes these stories and builds these not builds they were but brings to life these characters that were interesting and esoteric and dynamic in their own ways and contrarians and then there's this that's why i call it a thriller like how is it how is it all going to come together and how did they figure this out and how do they all sort of end up interweaving um and tells a story which is so multi-dimensional i just that I thought is it's the, brilliant that is the michael lewis formula mm-hmm. find an esoteric quirky outsider and weave a narrative not from the center, but from the people on the periphery who identify in a contrarian basis. Wait, what What does everybody seem to misunderstand? And then the next level is how can we capitalize on it? And you know what? You just describe what we do. What you do. What I do. As a headhunter. What I do as a headhunter. It's right. finding the people who, who see something, who can come at things differently, mm-hmm. who are um, 
who are able to generate alpha consistently over time in spite of everyone else? And what do they and and what does that mean in terms of um, where they can be most successful and where the industry is going? Give me one more book title because um, I'm curious as to what else you read. And then I'm going to share two with you. Okay. I'm going to bet you probably. Well, one of them hasn't come out yet, but one of them. I, I wonder if you read. Give so, me one more so time. So I'm in the middle of one right now, which is not something I normally read, but someone sent it to me and I'm actually really into it. It's uh-huh. called Hacking Darwin. Have you read I, this? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it yet. So it's it's written by this um, technology futurist. Right. And it's all real stuff, which is amazing. Um, and he's con- the premise being we can hack the genetic code the same way you can hack a computer, which we know we can you know, do things now with the genetic code um, to make people healthier, to make them smarter. Uh, and it's just, I'm only midway through it, but it's um, both the um, ethical challenges inherent in that, as well as the socioeconomic challenges if we decide something's not ethical, but another country decides it is, does that create sort of a superior population to us? You know, there's there's so much in it that I think is interesting, and it's written in a way that a non-medical um, person like myself can totally understand. Jamie Metzl yes. is the author, yes. cur- courtesy of Google. So the two books I have to ask you about, because you kind of describe them both, one is The Spider Network by, I think it's David Entrust. Uh, about the LIBOR manipulation scandal. Same sort of thing where it's a financial book, but it reads like a thriller and all the characters are odd and interesting. Oh, I'm totally going to read that. Yeah, that's it. And then the new Greg Zuckerman book on uh, Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons, the man who, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the title is, the man who who solved the markets. Another one that reads like a thriller and, and how do we figure out um, we figure out commodities and futures. How do we apply that and figure out uh, equities? Really a fascinating, uh, that's such a unknown entity and there's so little public information on Renaissance. Um, the Jim Simons book is really quite fascinating. Oh, thank you. I'm totally picking those two up. Can I tell you, I know that the Simons book is just going to go crazy only because it's, uh, it's a black box. No one knows what goes on. And post-election, um, everything that happened with the... Um, uh, Simon's partner, who who had such an impact on uh, the Trump candidacy, uh, that that's the I, I just see that book is blowing up. I could be completely wrong, and what I'm interested in, very often other people aren't. But I think you would re- you especially would really appreciate both of those. Books. Done. I'm totally reading them. Next question. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So I'm going to cite something that happened early on in my career, Mm -hmm. like inconsequential looking back, but I remember it because it was so scary and crazy at the time. Uh, And this was my first, this is my first job. I was at Goldman um, and I had done this analysis uh, and submitted it. And I got pulled into the partner's office who ran my division. And he started reaming me out, like totally carrying on and screaming and yelling. And I'm sitting there white knuckled, grabbing the chair, wondering what the heck did I do? I worked so hard on this. Like, well, how did I screw this up so badly? And I just I'm I'm my head was exploding. I was listening. I said, well, I don't I don't understand what what because it had been submitted to some other partner that was more senior than him. So I can't make this up. I had left off the middle initial 
of the partner who was the ultimate recipient of this analysis. Right. I had left off. I think it was an A. I remember to this point to this day. I don't remember his name, but I remember the middle initial was an A. And it was so insane. Wait, wait, uh, that's what he was upset about? This guy had his higher up had reamed him out because I attention to detail, she left off my middle initial. So um, Yeah, I can't see why you didn't stay there more yeah, than a exactly. couple months, right? Um but um That is crazy. just shocking. I know. Right. So um but you know what um uh I ended up doing was calling the guy who was the middle initial A guy and asking to meet with him and we ended up having lunch and um as it turns out he wasn't nearly as upset as i think the guy who called me into his office was just having a bad day or right. you know whatever the case was um but it it taught me about dealing with things head on and not letting someone else speak for me right um and uh and diffusing the situation um again by just having a, a a candid conversation you know sort of person to person and so um it was uh i don't know it stuck with me because i it was a ballsy move uh but it ended up okay as a result huh. quite quite interesting what do you do for fun what do you do when you're not um up to your elbows in the hedge fund industry so I've discovered my inner athlete in the mm -hmm. last few years i you know growing up in new york i uh I don't know. I didn't like I went to Stuyvesant. It wasn't like I, was, I wasn't a big sports person. I right. took ballet. That was about as athletic as I as right. I was. Um, so I found that I love cycling. I go uh -huh. on all these cycling trips now, like all over the world. Oh, really? Uh huh. I have a buddy who does that. They uh, they have a, a chase van mm -hmm. and they exactly. they went through Italy they went through totally so no, I do this in style I'm not like right. you know I mean so there is a van that follows us we stay in phenomenal places we eat crazy copious amounts of food because we <laughs> right. can we're cycling right. 50 60 miles right. a day you go through 10,000 calories a day great. it's easy you yeah. see stuff you would never see as a tourist you know you really and and we pick places that are just that are like, you know, they're beautiful to cycle. Where with. have you, give us a few names. Oh God. A few locations. Um, Provence, Croatia, uh, other parts of France like um, Ile de Ré, which right. is off the coast of La Rochelle. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the Hamptons of, of uh, Paris. Uh -huh. um, uh, Costa Rica. Oh, so um, really an eclectic mix of places. Yeah. Huh, that, that sounds uh, fascinating. Let me ask you um, this question about the industry. What are you most optimistic and most pessimistic about uh, the world of finance? So I think that this this shakeout is going to be for the better because mm -hmm. I really think the industry has gotten tagged with the poor performance of the majority of hedge funds. Right. And if they go away, um, or then I think what we're left with are the guys that are actually really delivering on um a business model that works for lps and so i'm i'm as much as this is a painful moment in time for a lot of funds i think the shakeout will happen the way it's supposed to before um, we get to the pessimistic mm -hmm. i meant to add, to quote you something from jim chanos okay who said 30 years ago there were 100 hedge funds they all created alpha now there's eleven thousand hedge funds and it's those same hundred that are creating the alpha is that a fair statement or is, no, is he, no oh, I, don't, I don't think that's true or you wouldn't see funds again like eaton perry and mm -hmm. i mean sorry eaton park and perry going out of business um or highfields closing its doors or blue ridge closing its doors those two were by choice the first two were were you know not mm -hmm. sure they were 
Um, I, and, and again, all those funds that I mentioned that are now shells of their former selves, right? We talked about the AUM drops of funds like Greenlight and Corvex and Discovery and Fertree. So those, that's not indicative of funds that have delivered great performance for the past four or five years. Again, this year excluded. Gotcha. So I don't agree with that. Um, I think now what, what um, is the differentiator are really funds that have set up an infrastructure that bestows competitive advantage to their people. Got it. So what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in going into finance? I think they need to they need to understand whether it's finance, whether it's investment banking, or it's going directly to a hedge fund, or really my advice would be no different to whether it's consulting anything. Mm-hmm. They need to be prepared to work harder than everybody else if they want to differentiate themselves. Mm. And I tell this to my son all the time. Everyone thinks they work hard. The truth is, as you and I know, Barry, most people don't actually work that hard. And I think particularly with millennial millennials, um, they I don't think people these days, we interview young kids from Goldman even to join our firm, to my mm-hmm. firm. They're not working the way I used to work when I was a Goldman. Mm. And so I working hard, that hard and being that overprepared in the beginning is what will set you up for success because you'll be ready for unexpected um, questions. Um, it sets up a work ethic, which um, I think just ser- serves you well in life. You know, and I, I that's that's the ethos I live by still to this day. It's the ethos of my firm. It's just it's being paranoid that you're missing something and making sure that every last stone is uncovered. I've read certain coaches say that given a choice between hard work and talent, I'll take the hard work. Mm -hmm. Quite interesting. And our our final question, what do you know about the world of alternatives and talent and recruitment today that you wish you knew 20 plus years ago? So I think there's a special cocktail of art and science that Mm -hmm. goes into what makes the best people. And when I look at the people I thought were good 15, 20 years ago, you know, when I, when I see them now, a lot of these people, I'm like, what was I thinking? (laughs) It's just what, so our judgment has certainly become a lot more refined as we've seen people evolve through different markets, but there are certain things that are common traits is what we've distilled from that, that I know now that I wish I knew then. So those fall into two categories, science and art. On the science front, what we're looking for is a defined process. We're looking for people who come at things through systematic research, through uh, systematic um, independent research, not through talking to their hedge fund buddies. Mm -hmm. We're looking for velocity of ideas. I want somebody who's constantly thinking out of the box and coming up with things regardless of how tough it may be. I want somebody who can um run um a scale business you know being able to deploy 10 million dollars is different than 100 is different than a billion for our clients i need the guy who can deploy a billion dollars successfully and generate consistent alpha over time and that goes to my last point on science i want somebody who can be effective in different kinds of markets isn't just a one trick pony mm-hmm. so that's on that's a that's a tall order that's on the science front but you can have people who have great science and no art and can't really generate P&L. Mm-hmm. And on the and and art is is, you know, it's a I think it's a little bit know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. Uh certainly for us, and I'm not sure how much of it um can really be taught. I don't think you learn this stuff at Wharton or mm, it's hard to it just it's there's a DNA composition mm-hmm. to it. And it comes to passion. 
Um, I know it when I see it. I know somebody who's really into their subject matter. You right. can't fake that. Um, intensity, uh, uh, an intense desire to learn and grow. We spoke about this earlier, humility. Um, arrogance is a killer in this sure. industry. It's what it's what kills performance. You have to be willing to pivot and come at things differently and evolve. And I think, but I do think the art can be made better if if you're somewhere that can make the science better and gives you the tools to refine your process and come at research more effectively. Then you can you can have more confidence in terms of relying on things like your non intellectual judgment. And your willingness to take risk and be wrong. So hmm. I do think they're all those pieces fit together. And it's about being somewhere which can really help you develop the right foundation. Quite, quite fascinating. Thank you, Alana, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Alana Weinstein of IDW Group. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. And you could see any of the previous 300 or so such conversations we've had over the past five years. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. If you're still here, uh, this deep into the conversation, then you must have enjoyed it. Give us a lovely review on Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.